What would you do in a nuclear war? That was the question facing successive Irish governments during the 1950s and 1960s. It was a time when the world's superpowers were on the verge of open conflict, a conflict that would likely end with missile strikes, mushroom clouds and radioactive fallout. In such a war, no country could hope to remain unharmed, so the Irish government began to consider how it might respond to that awful possibility. In this report, Ian Kennedy explores one aspect of that response, Ireland's so-called nuclear bunker. The early days of Ireland's nuclear bunker, properly known as the Integrated National Control Centre, can be traced through government files in the National Archives. Those files offer a glimpse of a different world, one in which Ireland had suffered a devastation wrought by nuclear weapons. It was from this so-called bunker that an Irish government, or what remained of an Irish government, would communicate with the wider population. To learn more, I spoke with Dr John Gibney, Assistant Editor with the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish Foreign Policy. John discusses the files that shine a light on Ireland's planning for the outbreak of a nuclear war. Well, in the, in the late 1950s, the fear of nuclear war was a widespread thing or preoccupied many governments, and the Irish government was no exception in that regard. And in 1957-58, they put a great deal of thought and effort into coming up with contingency plans for how to deal with the impact of a nuclear war in Ireland. Now, what I mean by that is two is really two things. One was the the impact of a nuclear attack upon Britain and also on Northern Ireland as part of the UK. You know, the UK was a member of NATO. It was going to be an obvious target for a Soviet nuclear attack if things came to that. And questions about, say, you know, the pattern of fallout from nuclear blasts being wafted across the Irish Sea or down across the border was obviously something that was of concern. But there was also another aspect to this, which was the Irish government also looked into the possible effect of a direct nuclear attack on the state itself, and especially upon Dublin. Because, I mean, while we were technically, while we were neutral, and we were widely seen as being firmly in the Western camp. So they couldn't really rule out the prospect that Ireland might be attacked. And when we say Ireland, we were really talking about an attack upon Dublin. Now, an attack on Dublin was rightly seen as having the potential to pose an existential risk to the state and to Irish society. It was the biggest city. It was the centre of government, centre of, you know, so many government departments and official bodies. Dublin Port was there. That would be put out of commission by a nuclear attack. So many of Ireland's transport networks either began or terminated in Dublin itself. So there were so many things clustered in Dublin that an attack there was going to have a profound, profound impact. So how did the government assess the potential consequences of this disaster? And how did they go about planning a response? They based a lot of their estimates of what might happen on British planning for these kind of contingencies. And British contingency plans, um, they kind of assumed that a 10 megaton nuclear blast might be the standard one to think of, okay? So if a 10 megaton nuclear weapon landed on, say, Dame Street, and they explicitly said Dame Street was kind of a natural focal point, well, it would basically destroy everything between, say, Ballyfermot, Dundrum and Finglas on the outskirts of the city. Everything within that radius in the centre of the city would be destroyed and Dublin Port would be destroyed as well. There would also then be a much, much wider hinterland of devastation and damage, of irradiation and fallout, of major damage to buildings. And this is a radius that extended well out into north, south and west Leinster. And within that, you would have there'd be many other issues to deal with, say, the impact of nuclear fallout, 
And then issues they were trying to grapple with would be, well, how would you get rid of all the bodies that would be there? Like one estimate suggested that at least 110,000 people would be killed by this attack on Dublin. What do you do with those bodies? They said that they would have to figure this out in conjunction with not just public health bodies, but also with ecclesiastical bodies, because the standard procedures for funerals might fall by the wayside. You would be talking about, say, mass burials, possibly even mass cremations, to get these bodies off the ground and, you know, remove that public health hazard. Then there's a question of, say, what do you do with everyone else who is fleeing or panicking? How do you maintain public order and impose public order? It suggests that you might have to go down the road of having propaganda broadcast and effectively lie to people to tell them that it's all grand to basically calm them down and stop panicking. People were going to leave Dublin en masse. They were going to fan out into the surrounding hinterlands, but a lot of that would be irradiated as well. So there were issues there. What about food supplies, sewage, drinking water? That's the kind of tenor of the issues they were trying to deal with. If Dublin was wiped out in a nuclear attack, how are you going to keep some kind of functioning political structures running? How are you going to keep society reasonably intact? OK, we'll get to those plans to maintain some kind of functioning system of government. You have these documents from the National Archives, memos and letters from the Department of the Taoiseach, the Department of Defence, various other departments. And a key assumption in those documents is that the government will have some kind of advance warning of an impending attack perhaps because of a period of rising international tension preceding that event, and that will give the government the time and opportunity to relocate itself out of the capital. Can you tell us more about those relocation plans? In those emergency plans drafted at the end of the 50s, a big concern was that a nuclear attack on Dublin would wipe out the Irish government. So as emergency planning evolved over time, the obvious solution was to try and get the Irish government out of Dublin, and that meant canvassing various locations that could act as as an alternative home. Uh, and not just for, <clears throat> for the cabinet, but also for the wider legislature, for the Oireachtas. Now, we're, we're recording this in the grounds of uh, the old Carmelite College in Moulton County, Westmead, which was suggested officially as one possible home for the houses of the Oireachtas, should they be, have to decamp outside Dublin as well in the event of a nuclear war or an attack of any kind, I suppose. And part of the attraction of Moat in these plans is its proximity to the town that was eventually chosen as the actual venue for an emergency facility for the government in time of war, and that town was at loan. The government was making its plans at a time when the United States and the Soviet Union were regularly testing increasingly powerful weapons. The largest nuclear weapon ever detonated, the so-called Tsar Bomba, was set off by the Soviet Union in 1961. That was followed a year later by the Cuban Missile Crisis. Although a limited test ban treaty was signed in 1963 with the United States, Soviet Union and Britain as signatories, the world remained only a miscalculation, a miscommunication or a mistake away from nuclear war. Yet the Irish government had trouble locating a suitable site for the proposed National Control Centre until, in the mid-1960s, Atlone's costume barracks was chosen. It was, as one document stated, the best option available in public ownership. The precise location of the centre would be at the bottom of the billet block, a large concrete structure designed to provide accommodation for soldiers and whose construction had started in the late 1950s. I visited the billet block and costume barracks where I met a retired colonel of the Defence Forces, Ivor O'Hanlon. Ivor is familiar with the early days of the National Control Centre and, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, he led training exercises in the handling of radioactive material. I spoke with Ivor about the billet block and the centre's beginnings. This area was repurposed 
as the national control. This area was never used in my time for anything military here. It was held as as the bunker for possible nuclear attack or fallout. I was down here when a command officer, the GOC or the OC, a commando C came down and uh, we're talking about it. And uh, I told him what my role might be in it. And he says, I can't imagine any government staying here any more than a couple of days. And of course, I explained to him that the fallout could last ages. And uh, he went away with a big question mark like everybody else did, myself included, how it was going to be used. Because there was no training done with in relation to a government coming and sitting here. There were no plans made, maybe sketchy plans of Dublin, but there are no plans made by the Western Command to accommodate and pinpoint cooks or administrative staff to come in here. The bomb fell in the morning. There were no beds that they all came rushing in here. I mean, you could have maybe somebody from the American British governments coming over here and you'd have to have some sort of decent accommodation for them. But the Department of Defence documents say that this building was not designed to take a strike by even conventional weapons. And that's fair to say this isn't designed to take any kind of no. military strike, no? It could, it could hold out if it wasn't, uh, if it hadn't a direct hit from uh, a modern day weapon. Despite its unimpressive beginnings, the National Control Centre did develop over time and new facilities were added to the building during the subsequent decade. To get a sense of how the Control Centre functioned at the height of its importance, I spoke with Paul Mulvey, a retired telecommunications technician and lecturer who, during the late 1970s and early to mid-1980s, participated in emergency drills that took place within the bunker. First, Paul described the Control Centre's layout and capabilities at that time. It is uh, an entire living quarters. They have sleeping accommodation, kitchen and dining facilities, an operations room for planning with maps, a radio studio as well with mixing desk, uh, record turntables and a switchboard uh, for connecting the control centre with the major cities around the country, including Dublin. Okay, and when the National Control Centre, the so-called bunker, is described in the media, it's, it's sometimes described as a place in which the entire government could gather together. But from your experience in these drills and so on, it really was only for a select group of people. Is that correct? Well, the facility itself was a command and control centre. So there could have been maybe 10, 12 people who were directly in charge of command and control. Various branches of the military the civil authorities and government itself. But they would have had a support network around them. So they obviously would have had technical people for the equipment, medical people and people to do the catering. So maybe there was about 25 people there altogether. The government itself were to go to the Carmelite College in Boat, where they could handle bigger numbers. They had the catering and they had the accommodation and they would be close by the command and control centre, but sufficiently far from Dublin. And Paul, you took part in the national emergency drills to which the national control centre was integral. Yes, uh, I was a technician working in the automatic telephone exchange, which was just right beside the barracks. And for civil defence drills, we would get notice that on a particular day at 9.30am, we were to go to a, a bank of switches These would all be switched on and that would cause 
direct lines to Dublin, Galway, Cork, various other cities to be connected directly into the bunker so that the telephone operator in the bunker then had direct access to those cities. Paul also explained to me the importance of the nearby radio transmitter at Maidrum on the outskirts of Athlone. That transmitter, which was connected to RT radio studios in Montrose, Dublin, allowed the bunker to become, effectively, the state broadcaster during a time of national and, indeed, global crisis. The Maidrum radio transmitter was a national transmitter, medium wave, transmitting to the entire country. The audio for that came from Montrose through our automatic telephone exchange and out to the transmitter. On the day of the exercise, we would change that so that it came from the bunker. And now the bunker could transmit to the country, issuing emergency notices and information about this impending disaster. Now, Paul, those drills in which you participated, although they dealt with a a grim topic, they invariably and fortuitously had a happy outcome. Yes, the uh, typically around 4pm, a big wind would sweep in from the southwest and take all the nuclear fallout away and everybody would uh, be happy and then exercise was over. Fortunately, the skills learned and the plans developed in those drills were never put into action. and The state was not forced to reckon with that ultimate crisis. The integrated national control centre in Athlone's costume barracks may be no more. It is now a storeroom. But its history at a time of nuclear proliferation and renewed threats of nuclear war is a reminder of a time when destruction by such weapons was a constant presence in the background of daily life. That was Ian Canady reporting from the grounds of Ireland's former nuclear bunker in Athlone's Costume Barracks, a facility that provides a chilling reminder of the Cold War and the existential threat posed by nuclear conflict.